psychological oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology. And with me today is Mr. Norman Gayford, a professor of English and philosophy. When many people think about science, it seems like something almost alien to them. They know that somewhere, a strange breed of humanity is speaking in incomprehensible terms about highly abstract concepts while conducting experiments that boggle the average mind. But it is totally separate from them until it trickles down to consumer technology. This is a bit of trickery, however. Unlike Sheldon Cooper from the hit TV show The Big Bang Theory, most scientists are indistinguishable from your garden variety person. They speak much differently than they write. They ground abstract concepts in concrete experiences. And their experiments are conducted with the same tools that you use at your job, the mind and the hands. Scientists are similar to normal humans in other ways, too. They take pride in their work. They don't enjoy being wrong. And they get excited about possibilities, even if they're just mathematical. Sometimes this leads to outcomes that aren't wholly what we expect of the lofty title of science. But how can we know as lay people? Sabine Hassenfelder, author of the book Existential Physics, set out to explain just that for us. Nice, nice. Yeah, so we've um, we've talked about this book quite a bit over um, probably the past several months. I think every week or every other week she pops up in the conversation does. as we were going through reading. Um, but we finished the book and we said, you know what, today is the day. We'll go ahead and, and yeah. examine it. So. Yeah. Um, do you want to give the listeners a brief overview of existential physics? Well, to start, it, I'll just say this about Hassenfelder. Really, I'm going to to quote John Horgan as a, a writer, uh, a science writer that I've also appreciated, and, and Lawrence Krauss. And this is on the back of the book. But here's a, a relatively young physicist. Uh, Horgan says, I don't always agree with her, but I'm always eager to hear what she has to say. She's one of the boldest young thinkers, and not just in physics. And and Lawrence Krauss, who wrote a book sometime back called The Physics of Star Trek, <laughs> which, which I always enjoyed, says she's part gonzo journalist, part curious child, part teacher, and part accomplished researcher. A unique writing talent and a unique science popularizer. And one cannot help but be provoked by her. <clears throat> Existential Physics, which is her newest book, is one that unabashedly, in which she unabashedly goes to the roots of science in philosophy, which Joel and I talked about and will continue to talk mm-hmm. about, and and will we very handily refer to any number of philosophers one would recognize or once heard the name of or we've talked about uh, from time to time. But... But she does so in a way to try to emphasize what, from her view as a physicist, where philosophy is useful and and important, and where the lines are in physics. So I popularized ideas, and she herself is popularizing physics by bringing it to lay people to read. It's still a challenge to read. It's not like the. It's not. A romance novel, but, <laughs> uh, which are fun, but but the, the, this requires some investment. Still, it's to bring physics to those of us who are not physicists, and to invite us in. And she, and she does that while at the same time uh, drawing some lines. So she provokes because she says things you don't necessarily want to hear. She tells you why she thinks you probably don't want to hear them, and then she sometimes says, "I'm paraphrasing." It's okay if you want to believe this. It just has nothing to do with science. Right. <laughs> yeah, so I, that's great because I think that really does capture the spirit of the book. And there's a lot in there that is very cogent to what you and I talk about on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. The, and the one that, that sticks out to me and the one that I think would really, um, I think the one that would really kind of catch inner crawl a little bit is this idea of categorization again. (laughs) And so you and I pretty much on a weekly basis talk about how categorization, whether it's just in um, linguistic terms or whether it's in, um, you know, abstract conceptualizations or whatever it may be, um, 
we try to define things. And what we find over and over again is that in trying to define things, we realize that the things in themselves, which is a philosophical term, um, are very hard or almost impossible to to sort of get around. Um, Now, for a physicist, the entire paradigm is shifted, right? Your your whole job, your whole um, sort of inquiry is is focused around categorization is focused around empirically delineating concepts and then discovering mathematical ways of giving them meaning or significance mm-hmm. and so that's where um you know as, as you and I have been reading the book um things pop out where we go oh hey you know man this was really well written she had a good point here and then there's other times where we go well, I don't know if I agree with her on this, you know, <laughs> because the, the viewpoint of a philosopher and the viewpoint of a, a physicist are so wildly different. I'm going to apologize to the listeners ahead of time. They, I live on a quiet street, but they must be doing construction outside. I think so, they are snow plowing or something. Yeah, so I have, uh, you know, I've, I'll try to use my audio mixing skills to uh, get rid of as much of it as I can. But if you're hearing some background noise, that's that's probably what it is. Either that or our brains are great. <laughs> yeah, that could be it too. This one's going to put us through our paces a little bit. So what are some of the main themes that she addresses in the book? Well, let's consider some of the, uh, I think, because I'd like other people to read this. So here's, mm-hmm. here's some selections just from the table of contents. Is math all there is? Why doesn't anyone ever get younger? Is knowledge predictable? Has physics ruled out free will? Is consciousness computable? Does the universe think? Can we create a universe? And what's the purpose of anything anyway? <laughs> now, now, just from those things, she is delightful. In, I, I love reading her essays and and continuing to read her work because she's obviously there's no quali- question of her bona fides of her of her superior qualifications in physics of of the brilliance of her mind and the capacity to bring this all to us. So I do hats off to her, but she does it in a way that invites you <laughs> by by that that poking sort of a Socratic way of gadflying and, and tossing <laughs> statements out that you say, now, wait a minute. Right. You just said, <laughs> and, and I'd like to picture her uh, smiling and saying, yes, I did. So what? Right. <laughs> yeah. And again, that's where this, this paradigm shift of the philosopher versus uh, the physicist kind of, kind of comes in. And mm-hmm. then I can tell you, if you read through that table of contents, right, um, all, many of those titles are are very philosophical in nature, yeah. um, the questions that they're asking. Um, but what I found interesting about it was, um, you know, obviously not being a physicist and not understanding the mathematics involved, um, to hear her, you know, obviously in, in, in lay terms, um, explain how the standard model of physics addresses these questions and the conclusions, if not answers, conclusions that you come to about it, um, a lot of them were um, not what I expected. <laughs> you, know, uh-huh. you hear some of these, you know, and again, some of those, those titles, why don't people ever get younger or can we create a universe, these sorts of things. You go, well, of course not. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but then she dives into the math and she says, well, you know, actually, according to the standard model of physics, if we had this much matter, we could create a universe. There's nothing that says universe. we can't, you right. know? Right. She doesn't just shut the door on everything. There are a couple of things she shuts, yeah. <laughs> shuts down. But that, and, and the way that the book is constructed, oh, I, I love this. This is a, a book that I, Aren't you lucky, former students? I didn't have you reading this one because I would have. It yeah. Would have, uh, it, it, because it is constructed for dialogue. It is constructed for accumulative and recursive thinking. So that at the, uh, there's a, a bit of an introduction to the chapter, but at the very end of the chapter, she has a section. Each chapter, even after interviews, a section that she's done, and she calls it the brief answer. Hmm. I would have everyone read the brief answer first. 
and then go back and encounter the chapter and then go back and say, now, what do you think of the, of the brief answer? Yeah. Uh, because it orients, it orients one to where she's going, why she's talking about what she is. And really the brief answer is, is that the, um, rarefied philosophical droplet that the whole, if, if the chapter were a nice drink in a glass, this little droplet would be the, the absolute taste. It tells you, but like, like she says in, in, in one chapter, uh, this is, it is, uh, let's see. Ah, here we go. Is consciousness computable? If consciousness emerges from fundamental laws of physics that we already know, it is computable. However, the update of the wave function and quantum mechanics might signal that we are missing some part of the story. And this missing part might be uncomputable. If that is so, consciousness might also be uncomputable and so on. But here are the mites <laughs> and the maybes and the we don't know yeah. for sure or at all. Yeah, and I think that that's what I like is if you look at those, the brief answers, you know, if you were to do that, read the brief answer first, I think that's where a lot of people would be shocked. Um, kind of like reading the headline of a popular science article mm -hmm. in your newsfeed, right? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden you read it, you go, wait, what the heck? You know, what, <laughs> what does that mean? But then when you go through and you read the whole chapter, you go, oh, okay, now that makes a little more sense. You know, what's, what's being said? Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot of things like that. The consciousness was was a good one. This idea of consciousness being computable, um, and we'll probably get into it a little bit later in the episode. But again, there's this there's this uh, struggle between the philosopher and the physicist, right? Uh -huh, uh -huh. And um, so I think I, it might bear asking, what does the book um, what does the book have to do with philosophy? Um, does philosophy have a place in it? Very much so, from from my view. Uh, I don't want to hear what you think about it because I think I know, but I want to hear it because it's not that she name drops. <clears throat> it's not a a primer or primer, as some folks say, um, in philosophy. It's not a here's the the basics of what you need to know. She assumes a background knowledge, but she also, when she mentions a name, she tells you something that they were talking about. And you, it's up to you to go out and find that if you if you want to. But she keeps going back in each chapter to the rooted idea that physics is working with, but the idea came out of philosophy. And so <clears throat> she's really saying we wouldn't be at this question point I think she's saying this is how I take it. Uh, unless we had had people a long time ago begin to ask these questions and form uh, this conceptual framework for us that, by the way, still pretty much works. Mm. So she's not she's not saying that that Western philosophy is the be all and end all, but she is giving lots of due notice that that, like it or not, this is where these questions emerged in our. Uh, experience of of culture yeah yeah to me i think that there's there's a split personality thing going on <laughs> a little bit because i think that you're right i think that a lot of what you just said is is implied in the writing mm -hmm. um, but then many of the direct um when philosophy is directly addressed it's um i wouldn't say in a disparaging way but um it's poking. It's yeah, poking. yeah. Because I, I think that, again, a, a physicist looks at philosophy as um, something that is quite literally half-baked, right? You Okay, well, you have ideas, but you don't have any mathematics or you don't have anything to back up these ideas. So that's where physics comes in. We, we take care of that section of it. Um, so as a result, you know, philosophers, okay, th they're not doing something... Um, you know, bad, but they're doing something that to some extent is lesser or, you know, is... Yeah, she does say, I agree with you. She has that. So, so that, well, uh, I mentioned this too before we got on uh, starting this, that in one of her other books, which was about math, she, uh, she said that there, uh, a book, you read a book 
a thousand people read the book, it's a different book for each of those people. If you read an equation, it's the same for everybody. Hmm. <clears throat> so that asserts a primacy of the equation over. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm in my studies, I'm seeing a lot more of this. It, psychology has an interesting history hmm. um, and it's, it, it's following in the same sort of way where, um, you know, behavioralism or the sort of mechanistic view of humanity was, was very popular in the 20th century. Um, and that, that sort of conception, okay, well, we can use, um, you know, it's, it's all stimulus. If, if you're on the nature or the nurture side of it, it's all stimulus and response, or if you're on the nature side of it, it's all genetics, um, can explain human behavior. Um, and they found that's not really the case. You know, there's, there's an interaction that, that, you know, it goes beyond that. And there's been other frameworks that have been better able to explain behavior. Um, but this idea of, um, you know, it's difficult, right? Because physics is, it's a reductionist sort of science. You're, you're necessary. And she talks about this in the book, infinite reductionism, right? Mm. And that's, that's part of this, this issue is, okay, well, physics and our, our sciences and the standard model of physics certainly is built around this breaking things down into smaller parts. But does there come a point where you can't break them down any smaller? And if there is such a point, what does that say for everything that's been built on top of it, right? Um, so I think that, yeah, it, it, I think she, she might have a complicated relationship with philosophy in that way where obviously to look at it, to a book called Existential Physics, right? She's going beyond just the mechanistic view of the science of physics. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, as a physicist, there is um, some loyalty or some perspective that is locked into the uh, split reductionist <laughs> mechanistic view of how things work. So um, it's it's really quite fascinating to to read it and to see how she kind of addresses some of those. You're issues. saying that very you're you're saying that very well because I. I I think she'd be naughty. I'd like to think she'd be naughty. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I think I, I, would really, I would really like the, the listeners to read the book because um, I know for me, it's the kind of thing where it's like, man, I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> I kind like, of hope she does. Because <laughs> that's the thing is, I, you know, I, I you know I think how she, what she thinks about philosophy or what she would even think about our um, critique of of her book um i'm not i'm not sure that she would like it um i'm but, not interested if she'd like it but <laughs> but, but i'm uh, but i think that we were doing something of course there's a difference because i'm a teacher <laughs> right so i'm certainly not i didn't mean that in, in a glib way i'm not interested in what she's of course i'm interested in what she'd say but we're not saying this so that she would like it and she's not saying the things because she wants everybody to, to like what she's saying either i think the fact that we're engaging with it yeah, it's really the purpose, and and even the title. I find what I find interesting, and I would ask her if I had the opportunity. She provides a nice, um, a cogent, brief glossary of terms. She doesn't put existentialism in that glossary, and the title of the book is Existential Physics. And if we go back to what existentialism is, it it is in part the the view that the universe cares not for us is not about us <laughs> and if we find any meaning in it it's up to us to find it it's not that the universe is going to hand it to us yeah there's uh, the yeah. title is fascinating because like we've mentioned physics is sort of the foundational science so it's the it's like the initial point of scientific explanation of the universe mm -hmm. existentialism as far as philosophical um, schools of thought go is probably one of the least explanatory in nature because it doesn't really address where did the universe come from? Where did people come from? It's much more subjectively based, right? It's, it's an introspective sort of saying, listen, what does it mean to, to exist? You know, it doesn't go into any of the things that, that physics does. So this Seemingly. idea, yeah, this idea of merging them, of saying existential physics, the, 
as a subjective introspective look at what it means to be human in within this embedded idea of explaining all of these big things it's kind of an interesting term it, it is and this is why except for a few moments here and there which we have which we have mentioned already uh she leaves one in that in that uh, ending of any particular chapter uh, she leaves one with not an absolute certainty sometimes mm-hmm. she'll essentially say well whether or not we can change the nature of time <laughs> uh, what does that have to do with how we're living yeah if you were a brain in a vet what difference would it make yeah and i and i think that those kind of uh, uh i'm looking at the math one uh, we use mathematics to describe our observations of the physicists do but we don't know why some math describes reality where other math doesn't one can therefore attribute a moment of creation specifically to the math that describes what we observe, a moment at which the math becomes real. Such a creation event is by construction not observable, otherwise it would have been described by the math already, and is therefore compatible with science. So what she's saying is math is emergent, not the way she uses the word emergent, <clears throat> but there's a creative element. And she's in that chapter, she's trying to say, Create, she talks about creationism. She she talks about the Big Bang. Uh, she talks about people. What people, some people seem to want to believe, and then she's trying to say, "Well, here's what physics allows, and here's what physics really doesn't." Yeah, and that's where <laughs> that's where the paradoxical nature of the writing comes in. I think right is because um, she's very quick to quite frankly address. <laughs> Um, fellow physicists overstepping of the bounds of yeah, like science. Carlo Rovelli. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's quick to go in and say, hey, listen, these ideas of multiverses or big bounces or any of these other things, they're ascientific. They don't, they don't <laughs> reflect what we know. The only thing that we need to describe the world we live in is, you know, what happened from the Planck, line, Planck length on. Um, anything before that is just speculation. It's just philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so um, there's that aspect of it, um, you know, clearly delineating what is science and what isn't. Um, but then the relationship with that, 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 that big chunk of what isn't science, right? I think that's where um, some of her writing gets interesting is, is how she addresses, because some of it is, is sort of dismissive or sort of disparaging. But then the other part of it, like you said, is <laughs> is this idea that, well, that's the existential part, right? There's the existential and there's the physics. And I'm not even sure if they're meant to be merged the way that she has them in the title. I, that, that's, where, that's where the difficulty with me and with reading is, is. Does she want them to be separate or does she want them to be merged in her? I, I think that's an excellent question. And I, and I don't... I don't know how she'd respond to that, but I, but I'm guessing there would be a little bit of a smile, <laughs> um, or shaking of the head or what. But, but, well, I think there'd be a lot of shaking of the head. <laughs> there'd be a lot of shaking of the head. <laughs> Chapter seven was the universe made for us in one sense. I think that's really, for me, the anchor point for the title of the book. Hmm. Okay. Um, when she says we have no reason to think the universe was made especially for us or for life in general. So essentially in one sentence, she doesn't mention it, but she sort of gives the anthropic principle a kind of kick and says, so what? Yeah. <laughs> um, it is, however, possible that our current theories are missing something essential about how the laws of nature give rise to complexity in our universe. Maybe the fact that this growth is possible at all will one day give rise to better explanation. Still, no scientific theory will ever be able to answer all questions. That's because for it to be scientific, it must have been selected by its success in explaining observations. But then it will necessarily bounce back some questions with the answer, essentially, why? Because it's what we observe. Well, if we can't explain everything that we observe, then there's more than science. Hmm. Or there's more science that hasn't yet happened. There's more math. 
that hasn't yet taken place. So yes, you're you're right. It's like the left brain, right brain go. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And my my development psychology book gave a, a sort of a a very good illustration of the problem here, and the, which is that the standard model of physics is reductionist, which essentially says, and she uses this example in the book as um, sort of her view of of the progression of science, which is that listen, there was a big bang. Um, you know, well, there's an in- initial state of the universe. Um, there's a big bang. And then everything that's progressed since that point is deterministic. Um, things have, because of those initial states, they have progressed and will progress in a certain way until the end of time. Um, my developmental psychology book takes issue with this because that, that was sort of, and that's what behaviorism and the mechanistic view of the human was based on. I said, well, the reason this doesn't work is because it's essentially additive in nature, right? Okay, so you have all of the particles in the universe. They're all moving in a certain way. Yep. And if you add that momentum and those particles, you end up with something. They said, well, that's not really the case because, you know, if you, if you add a bunch of oranges together, you don't get a motorcycle. There's emergent <laughs> properties, right? The, the clearest one is, is water, right? You have hydrogen, which is a gas, and you have oxygen, which is a gas. And when you put them together, they have this liquid property. And that's an emergent property. It's not something that's inherent in either one of the other ones. And so they said, well, that's that's kind of the problem with the standard model of physics is that as you start adding stuff together, you don't just get the sum of the addition. Um, you have these emergent properties that come out at each level of these mergers um, that the standard model can't really quite account for. <laughs> And mm-hmm. I think that's some of the stuff that she that she addresses with the the mites and maybes and you know think so. in the book is these yeah. things where and she she mentions it in the book you know even as a physicist I mean this is <laughs> this is what she makes her living doing right she says at some point we're going to have to tear the standard model down most likely she said it, it's not going to answer the questions we need it to answer oh that's a pretty brave thing to say <laughs> it, <laughs> but, it is but it goes back to all these things we have discussed in, in the past about the scaffolding of knowledge about you're, you're never going to get to the place. Infinity is a long time. Yeah. <laughs> you're never going to get to the place where everything is known. Mm. And that's why we exist doing this every week, isn't it? Because yeah. we, we, we poke and we ask and we play and we talk, knowing that we're not going to absolutely know, knowing that there are going to be even more questions when we end up. That's the fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, and to that end, she... She takes issue with, um, you know, I think that she does, she is consistent in that regard where she says, well, listen, the standard model of physics isn't going to answer what we want to answer. And then she kind of goes after physicists that are just um, search, you know, creating new particles, theoretical <laughs> physics, right? <laughs> Her and Sheldon Cooper would not get along, right? Because she says, listen, now we're just creating particles just for the sake of creating particles. Or, you know, we're essentially letting the holes in the theory dictate what we're creating in order to fill those gaps rather than basing it on observable experimental. Yes. Because the relatively, relatively is a big word here. (laughs) It's a relatively simpler answer. It's where she's, uh, where she reminds me of some of my, uh, the joy I take in detective fiction uh, or or Sherlock Holmes. Mm. the answer, no matter how unlikely, if you've investigated everything else, must must be the truth. She's not really doing that. She's saying the simpler answer is better than the other one. You don't want to go to the Gordian knot. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> you don't need to make this more complex. And and that's where we start inventing things and mixing it up. Uh, so, yeah, and she she does. She does go after some of her fellow <laughs> physicist uh, writers. And in in a kind of fun way, but where she's philosophical for me too is where she just keeps coming back to the idea of defining. Uh, the one point she says in the "Has Physics Ruled Out Free Will?" chapter. Uh, having said that, I don't have a big problem with physicists or philosophers' compatibilist definitions of free will. After all, they're just definitions, neither right nor wrong, merely more or less useful. Uh, but I don't think such verbal acrobatics address the issue that normal people, sorry, I mean non-philosophers, worry about. That's where she's being, you know, snarky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's being snarky. But when she points out that the definitions are about trying to figure out a useful starting place 
for a conversation. That's philosophy itself. Let's yeah, define yeah. the terms. No, yeah, she's using <laughs> philosophical tools in her um, approach. Occam's razor, you know, is yeah, this yeah, idea yes. of the simpler answer is the right one. She's, she uses that many times saying, well, could we explain what we see with this, this, and this? Yeah, but it's much more much simple much to just say this thing that we already have that explains it is the right answer, even yeah. though it doesn't go back and explain the initial part. Or, you know, um, like you just mentioned, um, ah, shoot, I just lost it. Um, when she's talking about... Compatibilism? Oh, no, no. Um, theories, right? Oh. This idea that... Um, uh, yeah, theory, whether, you know, right or wrong isn't necessarily what's what's cogent to the theory, it's usefulness, yes. right? And that's a philosophical stance, right? Is saying, okay, well, what theory explains most of what we say? What theory is most useful to what we're doing? And in that regard, um, I mean, that's not a, that's not necessarily a scientific position so much as a philosophical one, because you could have a theory that, um, doesn't necessarily have as, as strong a scientific basis, but if it explains more of what you see in terms of free will or whatever, then sure, why not? Why not operate under that theoretical? Even if it runs us against a wall, and an opposite theory theory comes into being, and and so it's imitative of reality, or it points us toward. You know, we, we talked about this uh, in, in an episode, many, many, many episodes back, where we are looking for something that seems to be credibly realistic hmm. at, at, at the moment. And, yeah. And, and I think that's what she's going for us. At the moment, this seems to be the, the most elegantly, relatively simple, that we don't need all of this other, other clutter. Yeah, and when we clutter it up with anti or a scientific conceptualizations, that's fun. You can go out and play and do all that, but just don't tell yourself you're being scientific because you're not. And I think that's where I, I love it because yeah. she gets to the that when I was spending time teaching science writing classes or writing in the sciences and trying to point out those things are not the same. Writing in the sciences is not the same as science. Writing, writing about the sciences is not the same as actually performing a study. <laughs> yeah, so you heard it here first, folks. Here's a couple philosophers endorsing um, the removal of uh, philosophy from scientific, <laughs> you know, which again, it's not to say we talk many times about how science is built on philosophy, um, but there's a difference between scientific um, endeavors being built on philosophical thought and the idea of integrating your ideographic or personal philosophy into your extrapolation of scientific findings. Two very different things. And so science being built on philosophy is great. As a matter of fact, there's there's even a scientific term for that. It's called meta-theories, right? <laughs> which a meta-theory is a theory yeah. of theories, <laughs> which is a fancy way of saying your philosophy, right? <laughs> what is your theory of how theories work? Yeah. That's your philosophy. That's your philosophy. So, yeah, so, you know, humans are naturally subjective creatures. We have initial conceptions, preconceptions and things. And that informs the very first step of the scientific method, which is hypothesizing, right? We all look at our reality and we say, well, where did this come from or how does that work? And then we try to describe or explain or experiment in order to figure out the answer to that question. So, yes, science does originate from philosophy there. But I think the important part is to understand that that's where philosophy belongs in the process. It's at the beginning asking those questions. Philosophy does not belong in the process where after you perform that experiment and then after you have the answers, um, trying to attribute something to those answers that the data does not say. And yes. that's what she takes issue with. And that's what we also take issue uh, with. I, yes, it is. I really, I mean, I very much enjoyed uh, when, she, when she, as as a science popularizer in her writing, she takes on the idea of metaphors, acknowledges that she uses metaphors like any popularizer would, and at the same time says, but metaphors, of course, as we know, 
are not the reality itself because if they were we wouldn't need the metaphor right <laughs> and, and so but when but philosophy as we know all the way and, and she talks about this but we talk about it often the the models plato's uh, cave or or the ship of theseus or occam's razor or we you know it, these work to help us think but they certainly aren't the science themselves hmm. yeah and, and and so there is a a very healthy relationship between the two things yeah so uh, what was your favorite part of the book <laughs> well i i initially i wanted, i was just about to say but, but no i when, when she's talking about multiverses i I thought it would be, it was, for me, it actually was, has physics ruled out free will? Because of the concentration on compa compatibilism. And of course, she cherry picks and finds the philosophers that she, that she likes, like Immanuel Kant, who's, who's poo-pooing free will. Um, but it made me think, she made me think freshly, but it's, it's, it's going to sound goofy to say, but you know, there are times when it's really hard to come at some ingrained idea freshly. Mm. And that's so important that we do that as we get older, as we, as we get more widely read, um, one mustn't get stodgy <laughs> as they say on British recipes and shows. Uh, you, 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 and, and she made me think freshly about this idea of compatibilism. And she points out that the compatibilism is about 59 or 60% of people uh, seem to take the position. Well, there's free will and then there's determinism. And, and she's had enough <laughs> of that and said, well, okay, fine. But if you're going with the science of uh, physics, pretty much shows us that free will doesn't exist. That, that the movement of particles into all the upper to the coarse grained levels uh, would show us that things are pretty much determined. And and what she made, what I appreciate about this chapter, and, and she didn't she didn't explicitly go there, but she took me there on my own path. She let me go out on my own path with this. I started to rethink the term will hmm. and free. Will and and to me, I came to the point, thanks to her, uh, even though she didn't say it, that that will is actually the deterministic part. Now, you and I were talking earlier about uh, genotypes and phenotypes, and 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 so I'm not suggesting that will is based solely on genetics or anything like that, but to me it seems like, and this is probably going to be metaphorical and mushy, it seems that the will is the thing that we try to counter sometimes by the attempt to make choices. Mm -hmm. Will is already the given to me yeah, now, yeah. having read this, and, cho and choice is that thing. That, so when people say, well, they're going on a diet and they're using willpower, I don't think it's willpower. I think the will of the body is saying, nope, I want to eat this and I want to eat that because, of course, it's winter and it's cold and it's going to feel good and, 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 and I need the extra, whatever it happens to be. It's the choice power that says, despite the deterministic will of my being and my makeup or, and the way I am because of my culture, I'm going to try to choose something that I might not normally choose. Hmm. And I, and, and that, you know, that's nothing new in that, but for me, it, 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 it worked. Yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting take on it. And I think that that does highlight a different aspect of it. Like, um, you know, the history of philosophy is essentially, um, the battle between rationalism and empiricism, you know, and different, different generations of philosophers taking up this battle, um, throughout time. Um, and a lot of that battle between the two is free will versus determinism. Um, so it's been talked about so many times, so many different ways. Um, and, and we've progressed in the philosophical thought. We've progressed, progressed in the scientific thought. Um, but yeah, there is a need to, to look at it differently. And I think that your view is, is a fresh view. And I'm thinking about what I'm learning in, in the developmental psychology class I'm taking, right? Which is that, 
um, you know, the, the writer of the book rails against behaviorism and, and the mechanistic view of humanity, the deterministic view of humanity, essentially saying that, you know, if, if it's a nature-based um, behaviorist view that um, your genes determine all of your behavior, or if you're a nurture-based view of genetic determinism, um, stimulus response determines all of your behavior. But the author of the book, in railing against those things, talks about how um, it's not nature-nurture, it's both of them, right? So you have a, a genetic code, um, but your genes aren't a static thing. Your environment, which is nurture, right? The stimulus in your environment turns genes on and off. Um, and so as a result, um, it, whatever your genetic code says doesn't matter as much as which genes are turned on and off. And then how um, your environment and your genetic methylization is interacting. Um, and even how your own thoughts, your own psychology are um, interpreting your environment. And then through that, you know, through the stress response, essentially, um, determining what your genes are doing through epigenetic behaviors. So, but what's funny about that, right, is in railing against the deterministic view, um, what are they using? What what are the, the actual tools that they're using to rail against it? It's nature and nurture. But is there is, is there suddenly free will in there? Did that suddenly pop out? No, it <laughs> no, didn't, right? It there's did. still an environment. There's still a genetic code. And there's there's a psychological element. There's my interpretation of the environment in conjunction with my genetic code, creating an epigenetic sort of ontogeny that, that goes throughout my life. But that doesn't necessarily address free will or determinism at all, no, right? All it no. does is phrase it in a different way that doesn't split nature from nurture. So, yes, the, what, what the science tells us, whether it's physics or psychology or whatever, um, it has a, a way of drastically affecting our philosophical views. And I think that you're right. That is a great part of what the book accomplishes. Now you're thinking you're, you're putting my, me in mind of the meme you showed me today. So describe <laughs> that meme. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's out of the, an old movie. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, it's a meme of the boondock saints and I'm sure everybody's seen it. Um, it's, you know, the scene where they're, they're sitting in a, in a, a church or whatever, and uh, a girl has a gun to a back of a guy's head. He's, then in, behind, a, he's in a front pew. She's yeah. In the next pew behind and then behind her, there's somebody else with a gun to her head. And then up in a balcony, there's a guy with a gun pointed at her head, right? <laughs> and so it keeps going back. And um, usually in the, the format of the meme is that each person has something um, written on them to, to explain it. So the first, the guy in the first pew has biology written on him. <laughs> The girl behind him has biology is just applied chemistry. <laughs> the girl behind her has chemistry is just applied physics. <laughs> the guy behind her has physics is just applied mathematics. Uh. <laughs> the guy behind him has mathematics is just applied philosophy. And the guy behind him has philosophy is just a byproduct of misunderstanding language. <laughs> <laughs> See, and it goes with, it goes with Sabine Hassenfelder's. Yeah. I think her intent. That is existential <laughs> physics to to some extent. And that's that's the thing is, I mean, if you look at um psychology is great, right? Because if you are a behavioral psychologist, um what separates you from being a physicist, essentially? Um if you're if you think that essentially it's just all molecular add, additive um cell determinism, um then a physicist like Sabine Hassenfelder, should be able to tell us everything we need to know about psychology <laughs> by knowing the initial states of the universe, right? And of course, that's with a lot of assumptions about um, the mathematics and the physics that we don't necessarily have. Yeah, I was just sitting here thinking she would say as she did herself. Right, right. But, well, you, you can't, one of the reasons she says we can't be, you can nurture the idea all you want to and play with it in your head, but but in, in terms of scientifically, what you, we cannot be in a simulation because we don't have the capacity to put consciousness into a machine and to determine the movements of all the air molecules and that's what you were just saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's theoretically, a physicist should be able to tell us everything we need to know about psychology, but 
there are obvious limitations that, that affect that. If you believe that, that is a behaviorist or a deterministic viewpoint. Um, now, like we just talked about, your view of philosophy was changed by reading the book yeah. in, in regard to the idea of free will and determinism. Um, what are some ways your views about science changed by reading the book? Um, not so much for me change, but enhance, because I've done a lot of popularized science reading, reading of science writers who write for people um, to become more familiar with and to think about concepts. And so it's not like she's the first person who's done this. You know, John Horgan, Lawrence Krauss, all kinds of Diane Ackerman, endless, essentially, list. But in her own way, she does it a little bit differently. There's uh, a cutting through, conceptually, that uh, that I don't find in some of, of the other writers. She's much less poetic than Carlo Rovelli, and I still enjoy it. Whatever Sabine Hausenfeld who thinks, I still like reading <laughs> Carlo Rovelli. But um, I, I think that it's so. It's not. It's not new, but I think there's an enhancement. Uh, an enhancement going on of reinviting me to think about the philosophy itself. Mm-hmm. And the relationship with science, and I and I don't always do that every time I'm reading a science, a well, popularized science book. Uh, so that I think for me that's it. Is that she she has dared to, and in fact uh, challenged us to. Yeah, yeah. No, I would agree. I think that the the same thing holds true for me. It's this idea of enhanced criticality, right? Um, you know, I as a philosopher, um, we're always trying to be critical not in a negative sense right. but in the right. sense of we want to look at something and see it for what it actually is rather than for what um we assume that it is um but despite that good intention um people are are subjective creatures we all have biases we all have um like you and I talking about the show before the show stereotypes and things right and so when we're presented with concepts um, we we have a natural inclination to believe or object or to make something new out of it based off of our prior learning and, and preconceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, what she really did for me with with both science and philosophy, reading the book, is um, the way that she was able to to look at things and separate things and explain things um, was to give me a a a, a a better philosophical tool set for addressing scientific issues, right? Um, I love reading popular science articles in the news, right? But that natural inclination that I have towards those things, um, I realized necessarily caused me to um, lose some objective perspective to the meaning that they had. Yes, right? the and scientific so, undergirding that they are avoiding yeah or 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 putting sort of in the background which she was she was taking issue with so which isn't to say that those articles are are bad in and of themselves right um now yes they're meant to grab readers they're meant to have these inspiring or fascinating titles and headlines and things and um you know and she rightly um goes in and, and explains with Occam's razor with um you know, theoretical usefulness, why these things are unnecessary to science. Um, and that part was very important for me to read is to say, okay, no, we do have philosophical tools that allow us to determine um, whether or not we should be giving scientific gravitas to certain ideas or whether or not they're just philosophical conceptions. But like I said, Separating the two is very important, but just because they're separate doesn't mean that the philosophical conceptions raised by this popular scientific article isn't cool and useful 
to um, a theoretical or abstract thought progression in and of itself, you know? So it's, I think that was, that was the real value of the book for me was looking at it and saying, okay, um, yeah, just because a popular science article, just because they did an experiment, you know, and they had these results doesn't mean that the conclusions that they're telling me to believe in this article is what the experiment actually said. It might be something much less. But even because it is something much less, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that um, what the scientists said after that isn't a cool philosophical idea that other experiments could jump off from and attempt to... You've caught that very well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that I very much think that's what she's doing. I can almost hear in my head, I'm not putting words in her mouth, but I just, you know, how the, the trite phrases that people, we use, it, thinking out of the box. Hmm. I, I think someone, I think Hassenfelder uh, is saying to me, think out of the box all you want. There's still the box because math makes the box. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're still in the box. Right. <laughs> if you can think out of it, fine, but you're still there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> No, exactly. So this was fun. I, you know, we've, we've looked at um, TV shows. We've looked at movie clips. This was our first kind of book review and I'd be interested in doing more of them yeah. in the future. So um, it's a great book. If you want to read it, Existential Physics by Sabine Haas and Felder. And until next time, keep on.